0: Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Cherfus. This is the first episode in a new series, and we're back on the subject of coffee, this time with a focus on Italy. You've probably heard of the triangular trade slaves from west africa transported to the caribbean and north america sugar tobacco and cotton to europe mostly england and then textiles guns and other goods to pay for more slaves round and round in today's episode a slightly different triangle
1: my name is diana garvin i work in the department of romance languages at the university of oregon and I focus on culinary history. So I look at food as an expression of politics and power in fascist Italy and in Italian East Africa.
0: Two points of the triangle, Italy and Italian East Africa. And the third, Brazil. Brazil's always had a boom and bust economy based often on a single commodity. The first of those, Brazil wood, which is red like the glow of embers, Braza, in Portuguese, gave the country its name in the 1500s.
1: Then sugar in the 1600s, diamonds and gold in the 1700s, and then finally rubber and coffee in the 1800s, which is what we're talking about.
0: All that ran on enslaved labor, first indigenous people and then enslaved Africans. Brazil received about 4.9 million enslaved people from Africa, more than any other country. And Brazil didn't end slavery until very late, with the so-called Golden Law of 1888. And you might think that enslaved people would want to work for wages, but the fazendeiros, the coffee barons, didn't want that. They were responding to an initiative from the new Brazilian government.
1: So the republic kicks in with a coup d'etat in 1889, just one year after this golden law, and they have eugenic dreams in mind. They are aiming to whiten the Brazilian population and to make it more Catholic. So there is a huge drive to bring in Southern European laborers, namely Portuguese and Italian immigrants, to be the new workers on the coffee plantations. And they were quite successful. Um, There were 2.7 million Europeans that immigrate during this period.
0: That's about half the number of enslaved Africans. Most of the Italian immigrants came from the northern areas around Venice. They were poor. They were mostly illiterate. So how did they even find out about these opportunities?
1: There are all of these ads for steamship passages going from Genova to Sao Paulo that are in the publications that are aimed at farmers. It seems really weird. Why are there all of these ads when people can't read them? The reason why is there were also farmers associations that were means to meet at the end of the day, have a glass of country wine and talk about the latest news in farming. And at those events, there would be one guy who knew how to read and he would read some of the latest news to the assembled crowd and then everyone would discuss it together. So that's how those ideas started to circulate.
0: With Brazil paying for the steamship tickets, the campaign was quite successful. As Diana Garvin said, about 2.7 million Italians ended up in Brazil. So what was life like for them?
1: These farms are incredibly isolated, um, not just geographically, but also linguistically. Life on the fazendas was difficult and it was particularly hard on women because they had a triple load. Um, Not only are they tending to the coffee trees alongside their husbands and children, not only are they doing the housework, but they also have a third shift of farming that nobody else has. Um, They're tending to chickens and planting corn and beans in between the coffee rows for subsistence farming. It's a huge amount of work and um, the, there are a few things that get lost in the process. You see a lot of the emotional tenor of this period in uh, La Cronica Italiana, which was basically Sao Paulo's Italian language newspaper for the homesick. So there is an advice column that ran for many years that women would write into asking for help for how to cope with Fazenda life. And you can hear the difficulty through these letters. Um, It's everything from asking for beauty remedies uh, to um, kind of recuperate what is physically lost through the labor to how do I manage hopelessness? And the answers range from the silly um, to, you know, you should just dance. Dancing helps to just think about your children, stay strong for them.
0: By all accounts, it was an incredibly harsh life, little better than actual enslavement. A life captured in a song of homesickness and longing from Caterina Bueno. But there was one fazendiero, a plantation owner, who seems to have been a little more enlightened. His name was Jeremiah Lunardelli.
1: Magazines of the period, he's constantly featured. He is the, he's really the, the face of Italian fazendieros of whom there were very few. He had a very typical story for this period in that he emigrated in 1886 while still a toddler, um, he's driving trucks on these plantations by the time he's 10 or 11. And what he manages to do is uh, he takes, he's able to take advantage of the coffee bust that happens in 1906, 1907. In that year, there was a bumper crop and prices plummeted. People could smell what they thought was roasting coffee from hundreds of miles away. It was actually the Fazendieros burning the beans to try and bring the prices lower, um, to try and get rid of some of that excess product. So he buys up a bunch of land um, during that period and ends up with 3,000 Italian families uh, tending over 4 million coffee plants. His innovation is largely in the housing that's on these plantations. He builds houses that are out of brick for the colonos, rather than out of sticks and mud, which is what they had been previously. Um, and he brings electricity into these outposts. Um, so that means that people can start gathering together in the evenings. There's a bit more of a social life and there is more of a um, kind of a rent to own situation with the coffee beans, where if the farmers tend his trees for a certain amount of time, over over time, those trees become theirs.
0: Okay, that's a bit of a deviation, I admit, and it's probably only because Geremia Lunadelli is the only Italian Jeremy I've ever come across, apart from San Geremia in Venice. So, that's two points of the triangle established. Brazil, where monster plantations grow row upon row of identical Robusta coffee trees, and Italy, supplying much of the labour looking after the coffee, and quite a few of the coffee baron plantation owners. On then to East Africa. That starts with shipping interests based on the port of Massawa, then the capital of Eritrea, on the Red Sea coast. But by 1890, Eritrea is Italy's first colony, and Italy sees its colony as a place where immigrants elsewhere can come home, as it were.
1: All of those Italian laborers that had been working in Brazil, in Argentina, in Canada, in the United States, it's the famous quote, a place in the sun, um, a place where they could work that would be under Italian control, and critically, that was going to move Italian laborers up the social hierarchy. So what this means for coffee is that they are moving from being colonals on Brazilian plantations to colonialisti on Ethiopian ones. And that moves them from the bottom of the coffee plantation hierarchy all the way to the top.
0: So when the fascists march into Ethiopia... In 1935, agronomists from the fascist party create coffee plantations in the Brazilian mold.
1: Long gridded rows, humans have have decided where to put the trees. It's not spontaneous um, seeding, which is what is the traditional Ethiopian method. It also means monocropping, so there are no other trees. Um, Basically, it gets rid of shade grown. Um, and that type of growing does work, but only temporarily. So it produces lots of beans, but with less flavor and aroma. And critically, it really only works on cafea Robusta. Robusta can handle those long gridded roads, the intense parching heat, but um, Caffèa Arabica requires gentler growing It does not work with the rationalist planting style that was so beloved of the fascists.
0: Beloved and a failure. The Italian plantations performed really poorly compared to those managed by Ethiopians. But the Italians didn't seem to notice. Why
1: not? Unreasonable rationalism, because what the Italians were going for was higher tree height. And in fact, they were trying to track the exact day that Italian planted coffee trees were going to be higher than Ethiopian trees. But even in this period, Italian agronomers knew the tree height had nothing to do with the number of beans or the quality of beans produced. They did know that these were not effective methods. And yet this performance of control and the superiority of height was deemed so important that that's what all of the agronomers are tracking
0: classic case of misguided measurement instead of real management at the time during the fascist period italians back home weren't actually drinking a lot of coffee dana garvin says that most of what they were drinking came from brazil and yet africa had a powerful grip on their imagination
1: there's a strange collective fantasy that the coffee they were drinking was African. So I looked at testimonies from the Piedis Santo Stefano diary archive. When these testimonies talk about coffee more generally, when they're talking about it as a product or just what they think of when they think of coffee, all of these Afro East African characteristics emerge. It's being contextualized as coming from Ethiopian plantations The cultural imaginary is much more drawn from African imagery. And that may be because during this period, so in the 1930s, in cafes and bars, all of the interior design was reminding Italian consumers that coffee was a colonial product. One
0: of the things that I think surprises many people when they first come to Italy is the imagery associated with coffee. It's still there. Um, it's overwhelmingly black faces and African black, not not Brazilian black faces. Not is it, in your opinion, is it racist? What? How do you how do you view
1: that? So I think what matters here is that in the nineteen twenties and thirties, there are two things that are happening. One is the rapid industrialization that builds a lot of cafes and also consolidates major brands. And it's happening during the same context as fascism and imperialism. So that means that the structures that are being built and the brands that are being crafted are absorbing the pervasive and explicit racism that's part of that time period. So unsurprisingly, the fascist empire and corporate allies produced racist imagery because so many um, brands and cafes were built during this period. um, These tropes have ended up being depressingly enduring. So people turn into coffee beans. uh, The very, you know, the definition of objectification. The reason why these images are still around actually comes from the economics of bar ownership specifically from a contractual form that's called Commodato D'uso. So this contractual form links coffee bean suppliers to cafe owners through their monthly supplies. Italian bars make most of their money from selling coffee. So to keep the coffee bean purchases coming, importers were invested in keeping all parts of the cafe in business. This is everything from the cost of the espresso machine and its monthly maintenance To the crockery associated with the bar. So those cups might break, but the images keep getting recycled. And that's why the colonial imagery of these former groups seems to endlessly duplicate even today.
0: Comparing today's imagery with that of the 20s and 30s, it does seem to have mellowed a little, sweetened, but it's definitely still present. And one of the most striking images. Is a silhouette of a beautiful woman apparently sowing coffee seeds. She's known as the seminatrice, or seed sower, which is a bit strange because that's not a great way to multiply coffee bushes. Anyway, she's young, practically naked, and exotic. Today, that image is tightly linked to the Tazza d'Oro, a famous cafe and roastery in the heart of Rome. But I was amazed to learn from Diana Garvin that she's merely one survivor of a trope that used to be quite common. What's more, that kind of image was used to lure young men into the Italian army.
1: There was a, um, an image archetype that was very popular during the mid-1930s to the early 1940s, known as nera so the Black Venus it was um, women, often heartbreakingly young, who were photographed in East Africa, and then their images were used as postcards, on calendars, on all sorts of promotional materials as a way to get young Italian men to enlist in the army. So often you would see an image of these women on the front of a card, and then there would be the address for the military conscription offices on the back. And the seminatrice or the coffee sower imagery fits into this broader trope in terms of the age of the women, their beauty, in terms of the fact that they are almost always topless it feeds into this into the classic conflation of sexual and territorial conquest. It's just that this figure is basically a culinary variant of the Black Venus.
0: Brazil, coffee, Ethiopia—complicated story that still exerts a powerful influence on the Italian imagination. But there's one more mystery, as far as I'm concerned. Diana Garvin says coffee was a fascist beverage, and one of the fascists' stated goals was autarky, the idea of being self-sufficient, especially as far as food production goes. But to me, that whole idea seems pretty weird if you have to go to some other country and conquer it in order to be self-sufficient in coffee.
1: To be specific, I i don't say that coffee is a fascist beverage but rather that the fascists thought it was a fascist beverage. Coffee is whatever people bring to it and what people read into its properties. So the darkness, the intensity, the caffeine kick. For the Italian fascists, coffee promised extra energy. Um, it would make work more productive. It would make the body move faster. Basically, it, was going to, it promised to make people less like animals and more like machines,
0: And that surfaced a memory of something I read in Karima Moyanaki's book Chewing the Fat, in which she talked to women about food in fascist times. Very few of them ever drank coffee. There wasn't much of it about, and what there was was very expensive. Karima found a passage in La Cucina Italiana, which she calls the bullhorn of fascist propaganda, that denounces coffee in no uncertain terms. I asked her to read. A bit of her translation.
1: Coffee for us is not a necessity, but a gluttonous habit. The worker who best defines health and strength consumes a minimum of coffee. He drinks it perhaps when he's ill, but at the height of his industriousness, his only beverage is wine, red like his generous blood, with the distinct scent of his homeland. Not consuming coffee is Italian. It's fascist, but also because our new work consciousness, like social duty, rejects this continuous, ridiculous prop in the workday.
0: Karima Moyanoki. And perhaps that kind of propaganda gave people a reason to avoid something that they couldn't get hold of anyway. Last word to Diana Garvin on what coffee really means to
1: fascism. I would argue that fa- that coffee is actually emblematic of fascism in a different light. That is not in its aspirations, but in its failures. Despite Italian agronomy on, a- on Ethiopian coffee plantations, the imports never rose. In fact, they cratered. So thanks to the actions of the Ethiopian Patriots resistance movement, which operated in the very highlands where Cafe Arabica was growing most plentifully... The majority of coffee farms in East Africa remained Ethiopian-owned and operated throughout the fascist period, and they remain so to this day.
0: Diana Garvin. I'll put a link to her research paper on Brazil, Italy, and Ethiopia in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com, along with details of Karima Moyanoki's book. It's good to be doing podcast episodes again. And there are lots of interesting things in the pipeline. Make sure you don't miss any of them by subscribing in your favourite podcast player. You can also subscribe to Eat This Newsletter, which lands in your inbox each week, alternating between details of the podcast and things I've found on the internet. And whether you're new to the show or an old hand, happy to have it back. If you like what you hear, why not leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts? It really helps to spread the word. Finally, my thanks to all the people who donate to the show. They help to keep things running, and especially to making a transcript available to anyone who wants one. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com supporters. So, newsletter next week, podcast the week after that. And in the meantime, from me, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye, and thanks for listening.